Greetings, my friends, and welcome to the next episode of Hardwater Radio. This is Jason Archer broadcasting live from the Valley of the Sun under the umbrella of Hardwater One. Today, we're going to be talking to Mr. Dean Lelm. Now, Dean is CrossFit certified. He's CSCS certified. He holds multiple certifications from the NCEP, including holistic nutritionist. He also holds a master's in education, which he now uses to break down the science terms and help his clients get healthy over in Southern California. Today, we're going to jump into a conversation around energy systems and how you as an athlete can pick the correct one, know you're in the correct one by how you feel feel and use it to your advantage to accomplish your training goals. We'll talk a little bit about the ATP CP system, glycolysis, and finally the oxidative pathway. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the conversation already in progress. So Dean, welcome brother. All right. Thanks, Jason. Uh, It's my pleasure being a a guest on here. My background is in education. I have a master's in education as well as exercise science. So I kind of use that to just help guide people through their their workouts and um, basically what their goals are. Uh, I try not to get too scientific and complicated with it because I want to kind of reach the masses. So I kind of make it a little more understandable for, for people so they can relate a little bit. Yeah, I noticed you use the word uh, science a lot during your Facebook Live and uh, specifically trying not to be too science-y. Yeah, especially with the energy systems, there's there's all kinds of science and stuff uh, about the ATP, how, how many um, ATPs are produced in this energy system. And when it comes down to it, if I'm training you or you're working out or I'm working out, does it really matter if I know that there's 25 ATP in, in this system or, or stuff like that? Yeah, only if you're taking a test, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to train any differently, or any, <laughs> I'm not going to train you any differently. So that's what I mean by I'm not getting too sciencey. Yeah, no, I can completely relate to that. I think that at the end of the day, right, we, we want to create results for the people that we're working with. And whether they know how many ATP are present or not doesn't really necessarily impact their result, right? So right. Um, from, from that standpoint, I can completely relate. Uh, there's a, there's a, curious side of me though that really is intrigued by the science aspect and I'm sure there's a part of the people out there listening who could certainly digest a bit of that so if you want to jump into a little bit of it feel free Uh, we'll do our best to keep it you know sort of g-rated for most people from the science aspect but if you would why don't you go ahead and uh, give us a quick overview of the three energy systems that you uh, that you were that you covered in your video and then we'll jump into a little bit depth uh, around rep schemes and how you know when you're in each one. Okay, perfect. So the, the three energy systems, there's actually more than three energy systems if you want to really dig into the science stuff. But basically, most everybody knows about the ATP, CP system. Uh, that's system number one. System number two is glycolysis. And then system number three is the oxidative phosphorylation. Now, the interesting part that I've come across is... When you're reading manuals and textbooks, they're going to talk about the time spent in each one of those systems. So if you just look at that on a continuum, it would look like um, when I first start doing any exercise for the first 10 seconds or so that I would be using ATP. And then I would shift gears and move into glycolysis for up to three minutes. Then I would shift gears and move into oxidative phosphorylation for the remainder of the time. Well, we know that's not true, that uh, they're not systematic as far as going system one, system two, system three. You are actually using all the energy systems all of the time. 
So what I like to talk about is which one you're predominantly using. So let's take, uh, for instance, if you're running a marathon. So what I'm going to talk about is the intensity that you're going to start the exercise with as compared to the amount of time. So when you're starting a, a marathon, you're going to be starting, uh, depending on if you're going to sprint out to try to get in the front, but predominantly you're going to be starting at a pretty low intensity. And with that low intensity, you're going to be able to sustain that for a long time, longer than three minutes. So that's kind of showing right away that you're predominantly using the oxidative phosphorylation. Okay. Now, when you're running that marathon, I'm guessing there might be a hill that's going to come up that you got to run up. Unfortunately, so, always a hill. Yeah. So when you hit that hill, you have to increase your intensity. And think about when you're running up that hill, by the time you get up to the top, your legs are probably burning. Right? Oh, yeah. So if you're feeling that lactic acid in the burn, that's a sign that you're in the glycolysis system. So now we should switch from the oxidative system back to the glycolysis system and you know you're there because you're feeling that burn. And then you get to the top of the hill, and now you have now you can lower your intensity again, and the burn goes away. So now knowing how your body is feeling, you know that you back basically switch back into the oxidative phosphorylation. So you're gonna switch back and forth depending on how many hills you come across and how many flat spots you come across. At the end of the marathon, you're probably gonna sprint. And you're not gonna sprint for the last mile because you don't have enough ATP left in your body to do that. So you're just going to sprint for the last possibly 10 seconds. And when you're doing that sprint, you're not going to feel a burn. Um, you're probably going to be a little out of breath just because of the oxidative stuff that you were using. But if, um, when I talk about the weightlifting, we'll talk about how when you're in the ATP system, you're not actually out of breath either. But at the end of the marathon, when you're sprinting, now you're switching to predominantly using the ATP system. Uh, that's a great example. I, I, I've never actually thought of a marathon as being all three, and uh, it's beautiful the way that you laid that out, and you're absolutely right. When you do hit those hills and you do require a little bit more intensity, you feel that burn. You can do this on a treadmill with like a, a hill profile, right? You, yeah, have that, yeah, you have that exactly. oxidated path, and then you feel the burn, and then you sort of recover, you know, and then at the end, if you want to turn up your intensity to mimic that, obviously you go into that um, ATP-CP cycle that you're talking about. Um, but let's start at the top and let's go specifically through these and let's give people some specific information as to how each one of these impacts training, at least their training goals in terms of what they want to create for themselves and then how they know they're in each one. Okay, awesome. So that would um, be more into the resistance training or weightlifting as people would call it. Now, when you're doing the weightlifting and strength training, basically you can eliminate the oxidative phosphorylation. Because I can't think of any exercise that you're going to do for three minutes in a, in a gym setting where you're lifting weights, where you're going to do it for three or more minutes without taking a rest. Okay? Even in CrossFit, when you have like an eight-minute AMRAP, you're not consistently going through that eight minute. You go until you either run out of breath or you feel the burn, and then you got to stop and rest. So when you stop and resting, you're actually resetting that energy system, and you're basically going to be in that glycolysis system. When it comes to weightlifting, there are three goals that you can actually achieve. Number one is muscle size. Number two is muscle strength. And number three is muscle endurance. So with those goals in mind, now you can um, decide which energy system that you're going to use to match up with those goals. So if I'm going for pure strength, I'm going to stay in the ATP system. So that rep scheme is going to be under 10 seconds. So picture yourself doing a squat. Um, let's say a five repetition max squat. It's probably going to take you about 10 seconds. When you're done doing that fifth one, you're using such high intensity that you're not feeling the burn 
and you're not out of breath. So that's how you know that you're in that energy system. But now, say your your goal is for muscle endurance. Then you want to go to the opposite end of that spectrum, and you want to actually do the weightlifting with a lower, starting at a lower intensity, so you can do it a little bit longer. So the example I like to use there is if you're doing push-ups. If you're doing, say, 50 push-ups, and what intensity are you going to start that very first one? So it's going to be kind of moderate intensity. But by the time you're done doing that push-up, um, what are you feeling? What are your what's your chest and your triceps feeling when you're when you're at that 49th and 50th 50th push-up? Oh yeah, you're burning for sure. Yeah, definitely burning. So that's what's your I call it the limiting factor. Your limiting factor on that is the lactic acid. You just can't push yourself through that anymore. And anytime you're feeling that lactic acid, you know that you're in the glycolysis system. Gotcha, gotcha. So if you're um, if you're looking at a um, you know, someone's listening to this at home and they're they're looking at and, and hearing what you're saying and they're looking at what their per- specific performance goal may be in terms of strength, for example. And you mentioned doing a set of squats, like a set of five um, over the course of, you know, 10 seconds or so. Um, I've, I've seen a lot of people who tend to think that they're building strength by doing an incredible amount of volume, but not necessarily realizing that once they pass a certain point, they've gone out of that energy system. They're actually being a little bit more detrimental toward the result they want to create, like in terms of strength, right? So I think one of the, and you might've said this in your video, or maybe it was someone else, but the, the idea of the strength piece and building, building strength was that you should have enough energy to where you could attack the bar. Is that sort of uh, where we're coming from, from a strength standpoint? Yeah, so when you're talking the strength, then we have to get a little bit sciencey and talk about the rest period. Let's do it, brother. <laughs> when you're going for those true strength gains and you're doing the five repetitions on that squat, you actually have to rest long enough for that ATP, the Krebs cycle, to replenish itself. Because um, if you're just going to continue attacking that and attacking it, you're going to switch over into the glycolysis system. Glycolysis system. So at the end of the day, um, you're breaking this down, at least what I'm, my takeaway is, and, and what I'm hearing is that you can sort of know where you're at by how you feel and how much time you're spending there, yeah? Correct. Yes, absolutely. Okay, so when we're talking ATP, CP, first of all, could you explain what those two things mean to people who may not know? And then also, what kind of time frame are we talking about? ATP is adenosine triphosphate, and CP, some manuals are called creatine phosphate, and other manuals you see are called phosphocreatine. The tricky part is, is we only can store approximately 10 to 15 seconds of this. So that's why when you're doing that energy system, it's a short duration, and it's really, really high intensity. Gotcha. So we're talking what, like uh, really short sets, maybe heavy loads, um, sprinting, um, that sort of thing? So you can, you can take that on the track as well. You can do like really uh, quick sprints um, up to maybe like 100 meters. Now, again, you're going to have some well-trained Olympic athletes that can go a little bit longer than that. But anywhere from like a 20-yard sprint or even a, like a really quick shuttle run, all of those, as long as they're right around that 10 to 15 seconds, you're going to be tapped into that ATP. And you can even use the same thing in the pool. Um, if you're a swimmer, you're going like really short sprints in the pool. And so you had mentioned the uh, the recovery period to re- replenish that ATP-CP cycle. And what, what do you think that might be on average? Um, research I've read says it takes approximately five minutes for the, the whole Krebs cycle to replenish itself. So in a gym, if you've seen the, the power lifters that are doing their um, squats and deadlift and bench press, they're going to do 
three maybe repetitions, and then they're going to sit around and read the Muscle and Fitness magazine. Then they're going to get back up and do their three repetitions, and that's what their workout is going to be. You know, you know a little bit of the science. You apply it, right? And the next thing you know, you have the correct result. Uh, it's right. it's it's kind of sad in today's world with as much of conflicting or muddled information as there is in the world that uh, people tend to be a lot of tend to be confused when they're in there by themselves. At least I've seen that when we go from uh, group X classes into say open gym, no one knows right. what to do. You touched on a lot of subjects that I've been doing my Facebook live stuff on. So earlier this week, I posted a question uh, as far as what myths have you heard in the fitness industry? And it's all market related. Mm. And there's so many of them out there. It's just ridiculous on what marketing has people believe. Oh, yeah. But if you dig into the science and understand it, you can see that they're they're basically they're tricking us. Mm-hmm. What, what would you say would be the, the uh, number one trick going right now? I would I would tap into the ketogenic diet. Oh yeah, really? Wow. Okay, cool. We're gonna have to cover that in another episode for sure. Because I there's several people in my life right now who are swearing by the ketogenic diet. I'd love to hear what you have to say about that. All right, we'll save that for another day. Okay, fantastic. So we covered ATP CP, keeping that uh, 15 seconds or less, 15 20 seconds or less at most, and then um, number two in uh, your chart was uh, glycolysis, if I remember correctly. Yes. So glycolysis, um, the key word in there is glucose. So that's where we tap into the, the sugars. And again, to get a little sciencey, the chemical formula for sugar is C6H12O2, or O6, I mean. So if you break that down, uh, you actually burn that sugar, and you're going to get carbon and water. So when our bodies are, are burning the glucose, that's what it's producing. Now, the carbon is going to be what we kind of feel as our lactic acid. And uh, the water, that can be just dissipated through, through sweat. So when we're feeling that lactic acid burn, um, the glycolysis is considered anaerobic, which means without oxygen. But the more oxygen that we have in our blood, the higher our VO2 max is, we can actually clean that carbon out of our system. And the more efficient that we can clean that carbon out of our system, then we can stay in that glycolysis a little bit longer. That's why there's such a big range of 30 seconds up to three minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, The other thing that you can really, how you can push yourself through um, to stay in glycolysis longer is your pain tolerance. So those are the the two big things, your VO2 max and your pain tolerance is going to let you stay in that glycolysis a bit longer. So time frame on that, you mentioned uh, about 30 seconds to three minutes, somewhere in that range, depending on the person. And then, um, and then you went into VO2 max. Would you just go into that just a little bit deeper? So your VO2 max is the amount of uh, the volume of oxygen that your blood carries at all times. So the better, the more efficient that your heart and lungs are, the the higher your VO2 max is. So it just means that your blood has more oxygen in it, um, and that's what that's what's actually cleaning out the the carbon when we're doing the the uh, glycolysis system. Yeah, I know this is a term that's used uh, tremendously in the endurance sport world, uh, VO2 max, and uh, the ability for these guys to actually uh, perform at high high levels. Um, my question has always been, is it really possible to actually measurably, from a scientific standpoint, up your VO2 max significantly? Uh, yes, that's going to come with uh, two types of training. You can either um, increase your VO2 max by doing the oxidative phosphorylation where you're going for like a continuous jog or continuous bike ride or anything continuous, but you can also increase your VO2 max by doing the, um, the glycolysis system. 
Um, and that'd be interval training where you're um, blasting those muscles, let give them a short time to recover and then blast them again. Um, cause anytime that you're doing an exercise like that, if your heart rate is increasing and your breathing rate is increasing, you are working on your cardiovascular, um, endurance. <laughs> but another cool thing with, with that is, um, your aerobic conditioning, which is the oxidative phosphorylation will not enhance your anaerobic, which is the glycolysis, but your glycolysis will enhance your, your aerobic. And kind of an example of that is, um, and I wish I knew this when I was younger, because when I played high school football in the summertime, I'd go for a long run. So the first week I'd go for a mile. And then by the time football practice came around, I was running up to three miles. So I thought, all right, football practice is going to start and I'm going to be in better shape than everybody. Football practice started. And what do you do? Sprints. And lots, what was I doing? Yeah, lots of short burst work, right? Growing up with everybody else. There's <laughs> so a perfect example that your your uh, oxidative phosphorylation will not benefit your uh, uh, your glycolysis system. And I see that a lot in coaching, and it just drives me crazy when, uh, say, like a hockey coach or a football coach sends their athletes on a three-mile run. You ran out of drills for them to do, and you just decided, well, we'll just send you for a run. It's there's it's absolutely scientifically pointless to send your athletes out for a long distance run. Yeah, this this is one of the things I think is very interesting about CrossFit because the that concept that you're covering, I think, is one of Glassman's theories, right? Like, uh, or one of the, not necessarily his theory, but one of the things that he subscribes to with the short, quick, burst style workouts, and then. Once you're once you're proficient at that and you have a good degree of performance at that level, you can then do something that's more oxidative much easier. Absolutely, um, I can't think of any like example right off the top of my head, but it, I I do know that if you do interval training and then you decide to run like a five k, for instance, mm -hmm. you're you will be better because your VO two uh, increased. Now the thing where the it won't correlate quite as well is the pounding of the pavement. So when you're running those distances, that's why I said 5K instead of a 10K or half marathon or anything longer than that. Now you're talking more wear and tear on your on your muscles and the, the constant pounding more so than it is the cardiovascular factor. Yeah, I, um, I have a couple mentors of mine who actually do distance. And their whole thing was like, well, it doesn't really matter how I feel at this point because what I'm doing is I need to just look at my instruments because my instruments are going to tell me how my body's responding to the work and then what I have to do is basically put out of my mind how I'm feeling because how I'm feeling is not necessarily a good indication of what my body's capable of. Um, I agree as well because when I actually ran my first half marathon uh, there was a huge huge hill they called it roadkill hill this thing was like <laughs> incredible and I had the mindset, I'm going to push my way through this hill. And everybody I talked to said, don't run the hill, walk the hill. But, of course, the, the human competitiveness in me just <laughs> run the hill. So it happened to be right at the halfway mark. So I'm listening to my, my radio, my music. I'm running out there, just, like, just going nice and smooth. I get to the hill, and I'm pushing up to the top of the hill. And I get to the top, and I am just absolutely done. My heart rate has been spiked. I'm out of breath. All, all those things. My, all my energy systems are toast. Mm -hmm. So now I have to decide whether I'm going to walk or not. And that was the other. My goal was not to walk. I was going to run the whole thing. Um, so those last six miles was 100% mental. 
I could not tell you a single song that I listened to on the way back. All I, all I can remember was that constant battle. Walk. No, don't walk. Walk. No, don't walk. The rest of the six miles. So that mentality, and, and when they talk about the wall when you, when you hit, it is real. Oh, for sure. For sure. We've all been there. It's no fun, for sure. And it's so true, that mental piece. I think that's one of the things that draws me to the gym is the fact that it's such a mental game. I think people don't really realize how much of your mindset goes into your output when you go to the gym. And it's affected by everything you do throughout the day, whether you're having a good day or a bad day, you're in a positive mindset, negative mindset, you know, whether you tell yourself what your self-talk is when you go into the exercise. And uh, I'm sure you've experienced that as well. Absolutely. So I want to talk about one more thing in the, in the glycolysis because we, we hit on the uh, muscle strength and then the muscle endurance and we kind of skipped over the muscle size. Sure. Now, the muscle size, I call that kind of the limbo land. That is going to be that right in that transition of where you're burning your ATP or use, utilizing the ATP system and starting into the glycolysis. So your intensity is at the point where it, it's almost so heavy that you can't do anymore, but it's to the point where you're just first starting to burn. And then the other kicker of that one is their rest periods are going to be really short. So now you're doing that same thing over, and then you're taking a little bit of a rest and then doing it over again. That's where the supersetting and all this come in. And then you take a look at the, the different bodies that, that actually do this at a competitive level. Mm-hmm. You're going to have your power lifters, they're going to be really thick, probably even like big around the waist and just thick, thick people. And then you look at the bodybuilders and they're 100% different. They are toned, uh, big bulging muscles. And then you take a look at what their workouts look like in the gym. And neither one of them are going to spend too much time doing the other one's workout. You're not going to see a power lifter repping out as many as they can up to that right to the point where they're starting to feel the burn and then taking that 30 second rest and then hitting it again that they might cycle through that once or twice, but they're not going to enjoy it at all. And then same with the, with the bodybuilders, you're not going to see them sitting around resting and reading a muscle and fitness magazine for five minutes. Again, they're, they might cycle through it once or twice, but predominantly you're going to be in the energy system that's going to match up with your goal. Absolutely. So at that point, we're talking a little bit more about hypertrophy, right? So, uh, so we're kind of between um, energy system one, the ATP/CP, and energy system two, the glycolysis piece. And you touched right. on this in your video that um, again, you're using the way you feel to determine what this would be, and how that can be a major determining factor. And then the other piece was, you know, uh, you had mentioned when you when you approach that point of pain not quite to the point of failure, but to the point of pain, that's when you need to stop for hypertrophy. Right. But then you go the opposite direction back to the powerlifting piece, and you mentioned how thick a powerlifter might be from doing you know, these smaller sets. So how do those two things uh, coincide with the hypertrophy being 6 to 12 reps-ish, and then the, the strength piece being you know, maybe 1 to 5 reps, depending on what the training looks like that particular day, yet these guys are still putting on tremendous amounts of, of muscle. Yeah, so also keep in mind that anytime you're lifting weights, you are going to build strength, you are going to build size, and you are going to build endurance. It's just a matter of uh, which one is the most important to your goal and which energy system you want to want to stay in. So if you really want to target that uh, just big, bulky, powerlifting stuff, then 
you would you would stay in that rep range of one to five. If you're looking to get the get that ripped and cut look, um, not only the weight training is going to come and play with that, but then you're really going to have to be spot on with your nutrition and your diet. And that's where the marketing comes into play too. And they kind of they they look at the at the the elite people in each one of these phases, and they try to market everybody has to do this in order to achieve that. As far as the general population, there's a lot of things that that are going on with the with the bodybuilders that they have to be so spot on because their their wiggle room for uh, error is so narrow. Again, you look at the general population; they don't have to be that strict, strict unless they actually want to become someone that is competing. And that's where the the marketing really starts to take over, and you can kind of fool us on some of the things that that they're putting out there. Yeah, I mean that's a I think that's a great point that you make, and a couple different ways. There's a couple different ways you can look at it, right? So the power lifter is looking for every ounce of gain he can in terms of performance to move a load, whereas a bodybuilder is looking for performance gain in hypertrophy and symmetry and balance. And it's two very different things. So power lifter is not necessarily concerned so much with diet unless it relates to how much muscle he can pack on, right? Exactly. And, and, and you look at that, though, and you might think, oh, well, this power lifter guy, he's not working very hard. That guy, <laughs> that guy's lazy. But this bodybuilder over here, this crossfitter that looks like Adonis, is really putting in the work and their diet is all dialed in and everything's perfect. But the reality of it is, is success uh, is is on an exponential scale. So to go from that average to good is a big jump. To go from good to great is a big jump, but not quite as big. And then when you go from great to the best in the world, you're talking about minuscule differences, right? And I think a lot of people don't realize that the difference between first and second on an Olympic level might be a fraction of a pound or a, a hundredth of a second, right? That's the difference between first and second, and that's what the guys at the at the top uh, of their performance level are chasing, just that fraction, that just that whatever little thing they can attach themselves to that's going to put them just a fraction of a second or a fraction of a pound ahead of a competitor. And then you get uh, sucked into the marketing world where, you know, Everything you buy is going to get you there, <laughs> not realizing all the mental and physical aspect of the training that goes into creating that. I mean, a supplement is, is not really going to help you if you're not at, an, at, an, at a level where you can, your body can actually use it. And so Absolutely. It, it's kind of funny to see how many people get sucked into that you know, solution in a bottle sort of a thing. Right. So you mentioned how, how narrow that gap is, and then you actually take and break that down into percentage. So when you're talking two or three pounds or like a kilogram in the difference between first and second place in a, say, a deadlift competition, now we're talking like six, 700 pounds. So you talk about two pounds of that, what is the percentage? And now look how narrow that gap is. Yeah, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And, you know, it's, it's funny to see, and it's across the board too. And so, I mean, not to, not to pick on powerlifters and bodybuilders, but I, I really want to give them credit for being excellent at whatever it is that they do, you know, whether you're starting at the, at the powerlifting level and focusing on that energy system or going into hypertrophy or glycolysis and oxidation where you're more crossfitting or distance oriented, you know, the, the point that I just wanted to make was that difference between performance at the highest level is always minuscule. And Absolutely. It doesn't matter how many pills you take or how much marketing you consume, unless you're going to put in the work, you know, and acquire the skill, 
of not only controlling your mind, but your body, and then also creating that routine, setting everything up around your day to make you successful. You know, whatever you put in your mouth from that pill bottle is not really going to help you. Absolutely. And then uh, even going back to like the energy systems and what our clients are expecting or what they're thinking, uh, quite often I get females that come in and train and they say, well, I don't want to get bulky. Okay. So if that's, if that's their goal is just then basically what they're saying is uh, my goal is more muscle endurance. So I'm going to train that person and, and each set they're going to feel the burn. So if I have a weight um, at a point where they just can't lift it, but they're not not feeling the burn, then I'm not doing my job matching their energy system up with their goal. So I tell my clients that don't want to get big. All right, I want you just to lift this weight as many times as you can, and and don't stop until you feel in the burn and you can't put up with the burn anymore. If you're not feeling the burn, then I have to change the weights and we we have to work a little bit differently. Fantastic. And then you look at then you look at these classes, uh, sculpt classes. So right away you hear a sculpt class, people think, oh, I'm going to get bigger in this class. Have you ever taken a sculpt class where you didn't feel the burn? <laughs> right. So to me, that's, that's marketing in, and it's, it's mislabeled. It actually isn't a sculpt class. It's a muscle endurance class. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think in at least at our gym here at CrossFit North Phoenix, we definitely have uh, women come through. I get call after call and, you know, the, the complaint is I don't want to look bulky. I don't want to look bulky. And then they their, their frame of reference is a top CrossFit athlete that they saw on television. And I, I'm like, you know, you do realize that this person has been working at this body for a period of years and they have a specialized diet, a specialized coach that has even allowed them to lean out and look that way. But the, 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 the mind doesn't connect that with the process of going through a CrossFit workout, they just see CrossFitter equals, I'm going to look big and bulky. And right. the, the reality of it is, is that's not going to happen for anyone unless they specifically set that as a goal. Yep. And, and the amount of time that the elite CrossFitters are putting in too, that's basically their job. Yeah. Full-time job. And of course, you know, people at that level of, of all, of all sport, really, they have their days, their weeks, their months set up to support success in that endeavor. It's their, It really is their full-time job, as you mentioned. There you go. Fantastic. Okay, so we covered ATBCP, right? We got uh, yep. short, intense bursts, sprints, um, short sets, heavy loads, high intensity. We got glycolysis happening between 30 seconds and 3 minutes, depending on the person. Then after that, we're going into the oxidative pathway. We're talking about distance running. Um, ultra marathoners, triathletes, that sort of thing. What did we miss in that uh, in that equation, my friend? Um, nothing. We we pretty much hit everything because, like I mentioned earlier, that the oxidative phosphorylation will not happen in the weight room. There there aren't any exercises that you're going to do for longer than three minutes without taking a break. Mm -hmm. So here's a question for you. So you know, if someone is new to <clears throat> excuse me the fitness world and they're coming into a situation where they are looking to get started, right? And they've been sitting behind a desk for ages and eons. They've completely let their bodies, you know, go to shit, so to speak. So where do they start? You know, what, what is the first step? You know, does, does energy system matter to them at this point? Um, how should they start moving? How should they start thinking about it and approaching that solution? That's a great question. Um, 
I start all my clients with just the, the basic movements, just learning how to move. The certification that I follow is the National College of Exercise Professionals, NCEP. It has three different, le- or actually has five different levels, but we basically utilize three of them unless the person's specific goal is muscle hypertrophy or, or powerlifting. So level number one is teaching the neuromuscular system. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually test you to see how low you can go in a squat, how well you can do a pulling exercise, how well you can do a pushing exercise. And we're only going to allow you to go through the range of motion that your body can move efficiently and in proper form. Because if I took you, uh, anybody and put them through a workout and just we really focused on the exercise alone and didn't pay attention to the form, uh, that's just setting somebody up for failure because eventually the person's going to get injured. Um, something's going to happen where they're not going to be able to continue working. Mm-hmm. So even if the progress is slower, it's, at least it's going to be constant. So I'm always watching the form. And then the second level in, that, in the NCEP is actually moving. So once I've tested to see how the range of motion that they have, now I'm going to move them in that range of motion only. I'm not going to have them go lower in the squat just for the sake of getting lower in the squat. They're only going to go as low as they can in good form. So the tempo I like to use is a 4-2-2 tempo, meaning four seconds down, two seconds hold, and two seconds back up again. Going down nice and slow, they can really feel and tell that their body's in position. And when they're at the bottom and they're holding it for two two seconds, uh, they can try to move their body into better position if need be, and then coming out of it again. And then the third uh, level would be uh, moving quickly. So if we teach the body how to be in a position isometrically without moving, and then we move it into keeping that same form while they're moving, now we move them up to going fast. Again, I'm only going to um, take them through the range of motion that they showed me that they can stay in with good form, but we're going to just move it faster. And that's how, I, that's how I take all my clients, no matter what level they are, no matter what their goals are, we take them through that, that step-by-step process. Gotcha. So we're going from uh, bottom to top, really, if top is more intense and bottom is less intense, oxidative, you know, sort of low heart rate type stuff. Um, I wouldn't even necessarily say the intensity. Uh, level one doesn't mean easy because, um, say, for instance, you want to make that level one isometric hold hard. Um, I challenge you to put 115 pounds on a, on a front squat and hold that for a minute. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's not going to be easy, right? No, definitely not. So level one just means that we're doing isometric holds, just testing to see what range of motion that your body has and being able to get out of that position as well. And then level two, again, you can you can vary the intensity. So say you have a person who has a knee issue or an elderly person, and they can't go very low in the squat. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to use a band, uh, put it around their shoulders and around like a pull-up bar, so it's taking weight off their body, and they're going to move in that range of motion that they have, um, and I lower the intensity for them. Or, again, I could load the weight up and do a 4-2-2 tempo with uh, 185 pounds on there. And then moving into level 5, which is power, for the person who has a knee injury, they might drop down maybe 2 inches into the squat and then jump and maybe come a half a centimeter off the ground. That's that's their, their level. Or I could have a, a basketball player like a LeBron James, and he would do a level 5, and he'd probably jump up to a 50-inch box. Right, right. So, 
So you can see how there's there's variations in inside of those, but it's it's so specific as far as watching their form. Gotcha, gotcha. So we're talking really traditionally getting people moving with quality before we start getting them moving exactly. with quantity. Exactly. When I was doing this, and um, what I used to do is put a stick on somebody's back or a foam roller to to see if their body was in good position or not. Um, and then I took that theory and thought, what could I do to make this better so my clients could actually feel and it make my job as a coach a lot easier on cueing somebody's position? And that's when I came up with my invention of the what I call the form fix. And what this does, I can't talk too much about it because it's not finished yet. So I'm right in the final stages of the patent and the design stages. But it's given instant feedback to my clients to know exactly if their body's in that perfect position or not. And then me as a, as a trainer as well, it kind of takes the, the eyes out of play. And we, we basically have a tool that's going to show if the person's in perfect position. You know, remember when we talked about the, the power lifter that's doing the, the heavy, heavy squat? If we think of our bodies as a machine, and when you're, when you're making a machine, you want to make it as efficient as possible. Their, uh, engineers spend countless hours on designing machines to make it efficient. So you take a power lifter, and I see way too often that they're not worried about their form. They're, they're doing whatever they can to lift that heavy, heavy amount of weight. And if they would actually kind of take a step back and look at what they have to do to make their body more efficient and see how, how important that form is, I guarantee they would get a lot stronger. Maybe it's going to take them a little bit longer, but they would reach their goals and less chance of injury. And what kind of brought that about is um, I love watching Olympic lifting, uh, the snatches and the power cleans. Um, to me, it's like it's watching a, a ballet dance because it is so spot on technically sound. So you think about the, like, where's the disconnect there that these Olympic lifters that are doing these uh, Olympic lifts spend so much time on their form and their technique and then you have someone doing power lifting who doesn't spend time on their form and technique yeah, why is that yeah it's it's it is sort of strange i think uh i think the difference between the two disciplines is the starting point which is why i asked the question because uh i think i think in a lot of people's minds when they go in the gym the, the technical entry barrier for something like powerlifting in their mind is very low Whereas the technical entry barrier for something like Olympic lifting is very high and precise, as you mentioned. But it is interesting because you can you can compare two athletes of similar strength and their bodies look very different. So you might take a Olympic lifter who can squat 500 pounds and he'll unrack the weight by himself, squat it two or three times and re-rack the weight by himself. You take a power lifter at a competition at, at whatever weight class, squatting 500 pounds with two spotters on both sides, a spotter behind, you know, and a power rack to make sure he doesn't fall over, and he's lucky if he hits parallel. So, yeah, I mean, I think uh, just touching on your concept earlier of starting with movement quality and then escalating the intensity, whether it's volume or load, Olympic, the world of Olympic lifting, competitive Olympic lifting, does a very good job of instilling that. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. All right, brother. Well, we're coming up on the end here. You got any final thoughts, any last words, any important uh, things to impart to the folks out there concerned about energy systems? The, the main thing that I hope I pointed out that in all the manuals that we see, it's going to be based on time. And what I want people to understand that it's more based on the intensity and you will know that you're in that system 
based on how you how you feel. Fantastic. So you don't really need someone barking in your ear where you're at if you have a little bit of basic knowledge. Why don't you tell the folks at home where they can get in touch with Mr. Dean Lelm out of Southern California? Where can they find you? Where can they follow you? Where can they consume some of your video information and ultimately take advantage of this fantastic product you have coming to market? All right, awesome. So I spend most of my time on Facebook. That's my part-time job, which is just which is crazy. So it's basically Dean Lelm, spelled L-E-L-M, and the Instagram is DeanLelm88. Fantastic, brother. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I hope to have you back many, many times in the future. I definitely want to pick your brain. We'll see you in the next episode, guys. All right. Thank you very much, Jason.